We have a testimony this morning from Rob Hall. Welcome, Rob. I had to snake my way through two ambulances to get here this morning at 9.30. They were in my driveway. It wasn't my wife. It was my son, Eric, who, uh, whose temperature was going up to 104.3. My wife was going to talk this morning on a passage in James. Count it all joy when you fall into diverse trials, extreme difficulties, because God is up to something. These things are our life. We have three children with severe disabilities, all on the brink of death at all times. My wife, who was going to speak, was going to need that chair because she has to sit down when she talks. I have leukemia, and yet we count it all joy. Amen? For you see, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. We're not home yet. Paul would say, I literally desire to die and be with Christ, which is far better. You see, if my son Eric were to die today, he who went blind at age seven would see again. Amen? Who ended up in a wheelchair just a couple of years ago would see again. My daughter Katie, who was back there, who's been in that chair her whole life, would walk today, talk today. Amen? My son, Mandale, who we had a big birthday party yesterday, who's perhaps the most disabled human in Columbus. You've only seen him maybe once or twice. But his body would uncurl today, and he would walk again. And talk again. And so Mary and I can talk about, we consider it all joy. Because God is always up to something. And these testimonies are about, what does God say to you? When you say, Lord, speak. Your servant listens. And there are three things that he continually says to us. There is nothing, Rob and Mary... There is nothing that you can do that will make God love you more. And there's nothing you can do to make God love you less. Amen. For it is by grace. It is by grace. It is by grace. I ask the Lord, do you love me? What do you want to say to me today? And he says to me what he says to you, if you know him. I love you so much that I cannot, I love you just the way you are. But I love you so much I cannot leave you the way you are. Amen. Mm -hmm. We are being transformed, changed through these difficulties. Ask the Lord, speak to me. And this is what he says to me. Those who know me best love me most. 
Amen. Those who know me best love me most. I asked the Lord to speak to me. And he says, I can guarantee you when I talk to you that you will know that it is me. How is that? Just through the word. I know that it is he. You know that it is he who speaks to you when you open this word. Amen. I count it all joy when I fall into extreme difficulties. In these difficulties about a year ago, it dawned on Mary and I that with all that we are doing, that we may have to take two granddaughters at age 58 in a cramped house. When you come to my home for Bible study, there are five wheelchairs in our living room, three of our own and two others. We have no room. And the God said, listen, you may have to raise two grandchildren whose father was shot and killed. And we said, no, we can't do that. And he kept speaking, but you might have to do that. Are you willing to do that? And we did. And you did. I hate to quote Hillary Clinton, but it takes a village <laughs> Not that I hate her or anything, but <laughs> it takes a village. And I want to thank you for, for, I want to thank Patty and these folks that are back there. You see, we were able to do this because in our home, miraculously, we were forced to have nurses and care providers, you see. So we have a family who cares for Courtney and Autumn at age 11 and 13. And we have a church who loves and cares for Courtney in autumn. And we are able to do this. And I want to thank you for that quest. Open your Bibles to Mark chapter 1, and I'll uh, do the reading today also. Mark chapter 1, verse 14. John was put in prison. Jesus went into Galilee and he proclaimed this good news. The time has come in your life. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent. Amen. Believe the good news. It really is good news. And Jesus walked beside the Sea of Galilee and he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come. Come. Follow Jesus. And he will make you fishers of men. And excuse me for doing a little ex exposition on that. But since it is amazing grace, how sweet the sound. This is what I hear when I hear that. Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. You're just one beggar, amen, telling another beggar where to find food. Follow him, and he will cause you to change the world. At once they left their nets 
and followed him. And when he had gone a little further, he saw James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John in a boat preparing their nets. Without delay, he called them. And they too left their father. Zebedee in the boat with a hard hand and what? Say it together. And what? Followed him. Amen. Thank you. You know what? I want to start with prayer. Uh, we first service prayed for Eric, uh, but I want to do it a little bit different this service. I want anybody who has either a long-term or a current sickness need that you need prayer for, or if you want to stand up and say, I'm standing in for somebody, would you just stand? And we're just going to pray that God would touch you now. Would you do that? Anybody? Okay. Lord, we bless your name. We bless you that you are a good God, that you walk through us, walk through the trials and difficulties of life with us, that you are a God who heals, that you're a God who blesses, that you're a God who brings peace. And Lord, I pray for each and every one standing here. I pray for Eric. I pray for uh, your presence to surround us now and bring resolve to these situations that brings glory to you and blessing in our lives and blessing to others. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Today we are uh, continuing a series on real Jesus. And we turn from what we've been looking at the last couple of weeks in the introduction to this about the descriptions of Jesus, the thesis statements, if you will, that Mark writes of this is who Jesus is. And, and we're still kind of in some of the thesis statements area, but we're gonna, the rest of the book is going to unpack a little more what that looks like. But we're going to return from the descriptions. And then last week we looked at one of the most defining moments in Jesus' life and how that can be uh, good news to us in helping us go through our defining moments. Today we turn to his first word. And Jesus' first words recorded in Mark are something that radically redefine everything about who we are, what we normally expect from religion and faith. And in so doing, we're going to get a powerful glimpse today of what God is wanting to bring and how he's wanting to bring life to each and every one of our lives and, and even bring a defining focus to our life. Let me start with this question. How many of you have ever been in a situation where uh, they, uh, the setting, you know, maybe it was work or maybe it was the church or maybe it was something else, where they were so stuck in their ways and they needed radical redefining in order to be able to grow out of what they were in? Anybody ever been there? Isn't that fun? You love being in situations like that. It's just so peaceful. It's so wonderful when you're trying to bring radical redefinition to a place that thinks differently. And they need to think differently from where they are. I was in such a place for about eight years in, uh, in college. I worked through UPS. I have, actually have a pension that will probably buy me a piece of bubble gum when I retire. And uh, during that time, it was the time when FedEx had just started in business, was growing, and they bought RPS and started trying to compete head-to-head -head with UPS. Before that, many of you probably don't know the history, before that, outside of the U.S. Postal Service, the UPS was really the only kid around. I mean, they were the only one on the block. It was practically a monopoly. And they were in a time period when I was there where they needed radical redefinition in order to even compete because FedEx was cleaning their clock in the early days and just taking market share like crazy. And I watched, even at the local level, great managers come in 
try to redefine what, we, what they needed to do to be competitive, and they would come and go, and some of them were fired until finally some started to break through. Have you ever been in a situation like that? Maybe it wasn't work. Maybe it was somewhere else. I mean, I think we see that kind of thing all around us today. Uh, we see it in the politics going on in the, in the world. We see it in Syria. We see it in Egypt. We see it in Afghanistan, Iraq. Radical redefinition. We see it even in, the, even in the United States in the politics and the economy right now. Will the economy ever really be the same? Can we count on the historical norms? What does that do to redefine what we think our retirement needs to be? And it's hitting home for many of us, even today, this radical redefinition that goes on. And it's fun, isn't it? You like it? You enjoying it? Jesus' first words radically redefine reality and religion. In fact, it's so radical that we see, last week we spent some time in Luke 4, and if you look a little bit further in Luke 4, just after Jesus' ministry starts, he goes to Nazareth, his hometown, and he preaches the words that we're going to talk about today, the message that we're going to talk about today, and it was so radical in their environment that they got so angry that they forcibly dragged him to the brow of the cliff, wanting to throw him off and kill him, and he managed to escape. What Jesus is saying to us today is something of huge importance. He's talking about calling us to him. And what does that mean? Let's look at that for just a second before we get further into it because there's something that you might easily miss if you didn't actually do a little bit more research on it. The history of calling disciples in Jesus' day was not done like Jesus does it here in this text. R.C. Sproul, one of the great theologians, current theologians and church historians, basically says that in, his, in, in Jesus' day, the rabbis, the great teachers, did not go and recruit their pupils. That was considered to be something they wouldn't do. Jesus decides to go and recruit his pupils. The rabbis of the day basically had these elaborate systems, much like our ACT, SAT tests and interviews and stuff that you go through for big scholarships. They had those same systems in place. But Jesus doesn't just go after the cream of the crop by testing them and doing this. Jesus actually goes to common, ordinary people like us, and he calls them. And that's one of the points of today. Jesus is calling each and every one of you to him, to a purpose, to healing, to a definition of your identity, to who you are in this world and the legacy you leave. And he's calling each and every one of you. And not only that, but think about this. These common, simple disciples, within a few years, were being used to lead a worldwide movement of historic proportions. Within a matter of a generation, this news, this message that we're going to talk about today that Jesus declared had spread all the way from Spain to India, from the edges of Russia, maybe even into Russia, all the way to Central Africa, all the way across to the far northwestern horn of Africa. It had spread over most of the entire world in less than a generation. So here's the point. If God's call to us, simple people just like him, just like he called them, is so important, so powerful, and so historic in its impact, then it's really important that we understand what he's calling us to and what his message is is. Jesus' core message redefines a lot. We're going to talk about first how it redefines your reality. 
Verse 14, after John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. And he said, the time has come. The kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. We're going to look at good news first. It's also translated sometimes gospel. So you've heard about the gospels, right? That's the same word as good news. It's this, it's this word in Greek called evangelon, which we get the word evangelist from. Makes sense, right? The meaning of that is more than just kind of the average nice good news. It's this really outrageously joyful news. It was a common term used for very specific things in the Greek and Roman cultures. In fact, we see an inscription that goes like this from that era. The beginning of the gospel of, and we normally hear the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what we normally think, right? This inscription says the beginning of the gospel of Caesar Augustus. And it goes on to tell about this historic moment, his birth and his coronation and the historic things he did to change history and life for the Roman Empire as we know it. In fact, we also see this word used in, for instance, the battles of Marathon and Salamis. If you're familiar with Greek Greek history, uh, the Persians invaded them, enslaved them, and the Battle of Marathon and the great sea battle of Salamis, the, the, the Greeks defeated the Persians. And they sent runners back to Marathon, where we get our Marathon today, and they sent runners or evangelists back to the cities to say, we have fought and we have won for you and you are no longer slaves. Think about that. Think about what that would feel like if you, were day, if you were there today. In fact, both the word evangelon and the word used for time in here are not used for ordinary time. They're used for historic change. This is something, this good news is something that happens in history that has been done for you and it changes your status forever. Now, we can look at this and understand, look at it even examine it from the difference between following Christ in, in this call and what it normally means in religion. In fact, we can look at it even from the, the religion that most of us, many of us, were exposed to in the churches in America, which is not at all like the real Jesus we're trying to discover in some ways. You see, religion is about advice. Think about it, Okay. Religion is about what you have to do in order to better your life, what you have to do in order to be saved, what you have to do in order to prosper, what you have to do in order to find peace, right? And so we hear these messages, which they're not all bad. You've heard me preach some of these, you know, probably not as inspiringly as some people, but you've heard me preach some messages about the three things you need to do in order for this to happen, the three three ways to find a happy marriage, right? We've heard those messages. We've heard the, three, the five ways to prosperity. We've heard them both in the church, and we've heard them in the leadership, motivational literature, and the speakers that we've heard, right? And, and when you hear a message like that that's done really well, what do you feel? Inspiration, maybe? Maybe you feel motivated for a time. But did you feel like the Greeks, when the runners came and said, We've done this for you. You no longer have to fight the battle. You are free. You are no longer slaves. Did you feel like that? Did you feel like the the POW who, when she comes home from being captured and comes back to her family and her land, did you feel like that? Is the good news 
of your faith really that kind of joyful news? I had two different conversations this past week uh, uh, with, with people who had, who had either friends or themselves who had ex- experienced these inspiring moments of advice, these inspiring moments of direction and, and, and support to change, and, and they made so much good progress, and then it was just like every other New Year's resolution that's inspiring to us. It, it kind of goes by the wayside in tiredness and failure. And advice, inspiration, just don't cut it. They just don't make it on their own. But following Christ is first and foremost about good news. It's about something that someone else has done for you. It's this life that Jesus lived for you and therefore we know that he identifies with us. It's the the fact that he died and he rose again and, and we know that he won the battle and you are no longer slaves. It's... It's, you need no longer be, be aliens to him, but you can be friends. You need no longer be slaves to sin, but you can be free in him. You need no longer feel rejected, but you can be loved. You need no longer feel weak or despised, but tenderly held in your weakness. Because the Bible says of Jesus, a bruised reed, he will not break. Isn't that beautiful? Religion leaves you inspired to try for a time. The gospel sets you free to rejoice, to emotionally rest because the work has been done for you by someone else who loves you so deeply. But you're probably thinking, yeah, but we still have to follow, right? We still have to do some things in order to grow, right? Well, yeah, yeah, we do. But let's let's think about last week's message again for a moment. Last week we talked about the fact that the gospel is about settling your identity through the fact that God has extravagantly, solidly, surely loved you and declares over you who you are. The gospel is about correcting your identity from broken and sinful to forgiven and being seen by God as though you were whole in the way he perfectly created you to be. A God who is compassionate towards your weakness. A God who is a friend. A God who is a trusted counselor. A God who never leaves you or forsakes you. Who walks alongside you. And in fact, sometimes he just picks you up and carries you into who he's making you to be. Into the freedom. Into the beauty that he wants you to be. Religion strives to achieve identity. The gospel says to us, your identity is settled because you're my kid. You don't have to strive for that at all. All we have to do is receive the gift of love and follow the gift of love. Gospel redefines reality, but this other word in this passage also does. It's kingdom. kingdom. The word kingdom redefines our present reality. In fact, the kingdom is the substance of the good news. So we look at the word good news and we go, yeah, there's great joyful news. Well, what's the substance of it? It's the kingdom. The kingdom redefines a reality. The time has come, it says, is present, is here now. The kingdom of God is near. It's close to us. It's touchable. We can experience the kingdom of God now. You see, the story of humankind is this. In Genesis 1 through early in 3, we see this picture of this perfect relationship with God and perfect relationships among one another of love and of beauty and 
And in Genesis 3, we see that the story changes because we have chosen to be our own kings, to be our own masters. And all of the relationships begin to unravel. The relationship with God unravels. The relationship with one another unravels. Why? Because of self-centeredness. Tim Keller says this. He says, self-centeredness is the most miserable form of life around. Have you really thought about it? To be constantly asking, how am I feeling? How am I doing? Am I being treated fairly by other people? Am I being treated kindly? Am I being loved by other people? Are other people approving of me? Am I getting my needs met by other people? Am I really being affirmed in the way? It leaves us exhausted. It leaves us lonely. It leaves us empty. We ask ourselves, why is it hard to trust others? Is it because they're all jerks? We're all jerks sometimes, aren't we? It's because of self-centeredness. Because we're saying when we can't trust other people, they're not meeting the need in my life the way I want it to be met, and they should be meeting this need. And this is the cause of divorce, it's the cause of wars, it's the cause of conflict at work. And Jesus is coming to us as this king this just, this loving, this compassionate, this merciful, this tender king. Asking us to trust him, to believe his view of us. Not our past, not what our past tells us we are, not what other people around us tell we are, tell us we are, not the lies we tell ourselves, but to believe his view of who we are, that we really truly are fully loved, that we really truly are created good with a good purpose. This passage also redefines for us radical. Verse 16, as Jesus walked beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen coming, and he says, come follow me. And I will make you fishers of men. And at once they left their nets and followed him. When he had gone a little further, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and his brother John in the boat preparing their nets. Without delay, he called them. And they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men and followed him. Can you picture this event? Pick a seashore. Pick a lake, a big, 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 big lake you've been walking on. Picture, picture that in your mind. Picture a couple boats out there and these guys working there. And, and see, you've got to understand, uh, we, you know, we, we oftentimes treat the disciples as these impoverished people. They probably were not really wealthy, but they probably weren't impoverished either because the Sea of Galilee during that day was the, had the most uh, variety of fish of almost any lake in the Roman Empire and was full of fish. It was well known to be a place where they would catch fish, they would salt them, they would dry them, and they'd ship them all over the Roman Empire because it was such a great place. So these guys are fishermen probably with a thriving business in a culture where family meant everything. Can you see Zebedee, the father, as James and John hear this guy and they get up and they walk away saying, see you later, Dad. I'm going to follow this guy. I'm leaving you. I'm leaving the family business that you created for me that you were going to pass on to me. I'm going to follow this guy I met two days ago. It's the biggest radical sacrifice of the day in that day 
to leave your family. Today, in our individualistic culture, it's not that big of a deal. I mean, you know, we've all probably experienced it. For me, for instance, uh, you know, my family, my immediate family is the closest we've ever been in 25 years. I have two, two, two members of my family in New Jersey, uh, one in Atlanta and one in Denver, and, and we've never been so close in 25 years. You know, I mean, it's not that big of a deal, is it, in our culture today, to do that. So what is a big deal? Imagine, imagine a preacher coming into town and holding a meeting and creating a stir, and then two days later, walking into your office. Can you picture him? Coming in, in his suit and tie or whatever he's wearing or jeans or whatever. And he looks at you and says, come follow me. And you pick up your non-company iPhone. You take out your company keys and you lay them on the desk. You grab your, your coat or your purse or whatever your personal belongings are. You pick them up and you walk out the door and you just say, bye. See you later, guys. You see, Jesus is saying to us, I want priority over your family. That's what he's saying to the people, the disciples then. And today it would probably be phrased like this because our culture is different. He says, I want priority over your career. I want priority over your money. I want priority over your definition of success in life. I want you to know me and obediently follow me and serve me as the supreme passion of your life. And that everything else in your life would be secondary and would be simply a support role to that supreme passion as I direct. That's radical. And we often are afraid of radical, aren't we? And rightfully so. We've got terrorists killing people in religion because of their religious radicals. We've got people killing abortion doctors and doing all sorts of crazy stuff in the, in the, name, of, in the name of God. But, but let's, let's put that crazy stuff away. Let's even get a little closer to home. Let's just talk about the people that we all know, all know who are judgmental and demeaning and self-righteous and better than other people. And, you know, I was just talking to a couple people who went to the Super Bowl last week, and, and they, were, they were telling me that the thing that broke their heart the most is when they walked Everywhere they walked, there were bullhorn preachers, and they weren't the nice bullhorn preachers inviting people to the love of God. They were the bullhorn preachers who were telling people, you're going to hell, you are scum, shaming people, trying to demean them, condemn them, so they'd feel bad enough that they might want to follow that God that they're talking about. I don't know about that. And on the other hand, we've also seen the people who claim to have faith, and they're hypocritical. They just don't live it. And that turns us off too, right? And so our solution a lot of times is that we, we, just, we just live by the, the wise phrase, live in moderation. And so we want to we kind of water all that stuff down and live somewhere in the middle, you know? We can't take the vodka straight, so we put water in it, you know? Or we, we, we add a little extra water to the gas to make it go further. And is that really what Jesus is saying to us? In Luke 14, Jesus himself says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother and wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. It doesn't say, oh, most of you can be moderate. Most of you can just be middle of the road. Most of you can be just kind of, you, you know, it, we just need a few lifers who are going to go, you know, 
pastor some great churches in America. We need a few Delta Force missionary types to send to Al-Qaeda-ridden countries. It doesn't, it doesn't say that. It says, if anyone, if anyone comes to me, and we have a hard time with this, and does not hate, such a person cannot be my disciple. What does Jesus mean? Uh, Obviously, he doesn't mean hate in the way that we oftentimes think of hate because he says elsewhere, love above all else. Love your enemies, he even tells us. So it's obviously not saying the face value of what we think. It's, It's not actual hate. It's comparative hate. He's saying to us, if your commitment to your family, if your commitment to your marriage, if your commitment to your job, if your commitment to your money and your definition of success, if your commitment to your retirement plans are greater than me, in fact, if your commitment to any of those things does not look like hate compared to how much you are passionately committed to me, then you cannot be my disciple. I will not recognize you as my disciple. And those are tough words, aren't they? And all too often in the church, we invite people to faith by simply saying, yeah, just confess your sins, come to Christ, and uh, invite him into your heart, and everything will be good. But that's not the real Jesus. The real Jesus offers us so much more and demands so much more of us. And some of you are listening and you're going, man, I feel really guilty. And, and you know what? A lot of that guilt, I'm going to tell you straight up front, is because you have a religious background instead of understanding following Christ. Because Jesus is saying, do you come to me? I want to be your true Lord. I want to be your true love. I want to be your true life. I want to be your true contentment. I want to be the true definition of the person who brings you the greatest joy and the greatest success in life. I created you fabulously. And though you are damaged, I am going to restore that fabulousness. How about that word? In radical, advice-based religion, you see, you have a relationship with God because of right belief and right living, right behavior, right morals. So therefore, if you're good enough at living that kind of religious life, then you are automatically going to feel superior to other people around you who have the wrong beliefs and the wrong living. And that way, when they come to you, and if you're good enough in this religious way, and somebody comes to you who thinks differently, who has different morals than you, you're going to be a person who typically needs to bunker up and protect themselves when someone disagrees. Because you're going to live life more fearful of spending time around sinners, and you're going to become more concerned about you falling into sin. Anybody here self-centered in the centeredness in that? You're going to become more concerned about you falling into sin and being hurt than you are concerned about loving others. And you're going to act as though, even in that time, that others are unable to find God unless they get rid of their sin first. And that's just simply not true. And therefore, if we're religious radicals, our goal in witnessing becomes and relating to others who we deem as sinners is to defeat them 
by our superior moral life that's going to attract them to be like us or by our superior theological or moral arguments. And thus, we become bullhorn preachers. Religion leads to self-centeredness and all the fear that associates with that. In radical, gospel, good news, Christ-following faith, we're so fully aware that we are sinners and that any of the good in our life is totally bound up in God and that our identity is so securely found in God that when we meet someone who has different practices, different viewpoints, different morality, we don't feel like we're better than them because we know we're not. And we don't need to forcibly convince them to live differently. And instead, we can simply demonstrate to them the same patience, the same love, the same kindness, the same perseverance of staying in relationship with them the same way that Jesus treats us. You know, the problem with religious radicals is not that they have gone too far. It's that they have not gone far enough. They might look a little bit like Jesus in some of their moral behavior and some of their actions, but they're not radical in love. They're not radical in forgiveness. They're not radical in staying in relationship with someone even when they're being offended and hurt by them. Instead, they keep people different from them at a distance. And in church, the way that looks a lot of times for us is we have a lot of church, religious radicals in church who tend to bounce from church to church. They leave a church whenever they get hurt or whenever their needs aren't being met or whenever they need to go find a, the correct theology, the correct doctrine, and they miss the entire point of why Jesus came to earth in the first place. They call themselves Christians and miss the entire point. The entire point is all about, well, did Jesus come to us when we were all fixed and cleaned up? Did Jesus come to us and stay in relationship with us when we, when we were completely faithful to him all the time? Did Jesus, does Jesus stay in relationship with us only when, only when we don't offend him? No. God's asking us to be like Jesus. And it says that Jesus is faithful to us in relationship even when we are unfaithful. Now, there are, are, are good, godly, called reasons to leave a church. But I would submit to you that most of us, when we've changed churches, have changed for religious reasons, not because we were following Jesus. And we miss the core of what it means to follow Jesus, to love regardless of agreement, to love regardless of of the lack of offense, to love whether we have our way and we, are not, and we get what we want or whether we're treated fairly or not. That is the core of this radical gospel that Jesus is calling us to. Instead, religious people are more fearful of hurt and not being right in belief than they are fearful of not living like Jesus did with those who don't believe fully right, with those who don't live fully right, with those who hurt them. And God is calling us to something radically beautiful, radically wonderful, that even provides more peace and contentment than we can ever imagine in life. 
which leads us to the next point. Jesus, rede Jesus redefines our expectations. Look at verse 17. It reads, I will make you fishers of men and women. And let me say this. I'm gonna, uh, there's, there's, a, there's a word in there that doesn't get translated well to English, but let me just say this. In this series, because we're going verse by verse through Mark, we, um, I'm, I'm dealing a little bit more, talking a little bit more about Greek and the, the culture of that day. Can I just tell you that that you can read the Bible on your own without knowing any of that because the translations are good enough and you can get 99% of all the truth you ever need without anybody ever telling you this. In fact, the point I'm about to make, you could get made by four or five other obvious places that you wouldn't need to understand the Greek. So I don't want anybody to get intimidated saying, I can't read the Bible because I don't know that, right? So let's, let's set that one aside. But there's a, there's a word that sometimes words in different languages don't translate well because their grammar constructions are different. And, and if we were to look at this verse 17 and read it the way literally probably would, the, the way it could be literally translated, it would, it would say this. It would say, I will make you to be becoming fishers of men and women. Be becoming. Jesus redefines the expectations for us in following him to be just simply a process. Start where you're at. You are a faithful follower. It doesn't matter where you're at on the continuum. You can just take one step at a time. It's a process. He goes further in this, and the meaning of this goes a little further because he's using the image of water and the image of the metaphor there. In Hebrew literature, the metaphor of water is a metaphor for darkness and chaos. And so his call to us is simply this. I want you to be becoming really good at rescuing people from chaos and bringing them to order, rescuing people from darkness and bringing them to light, rescuing people from disease and bringing them to health, rescuing them from broken relationships and bringing them to whole relationships with the same kind of empathy for weakness that Jesus has for us in that process. Now, what does that look like? It looks different for all of us. You know, if you've just begun or if you've been brought up in a setting where you've been thinking religiously about your faith for a long time, it's probably going to look like a five-year-old trying to describe what it's going to be like to be married someday, right? How many of you ever heard a five-year-old describe what it means to be married? It goes something like this. My wife will be pretty if it's a boy. My wife will be pretty and will make me a sandwich cut in a star just like my mom, but she won't make me pick up my clothes. And that's what marriage looks like, right? Right? And when we start on the journey with Jesus, we really have no idea what it's going to look like in the end. But he's just asking us to follow him. And as we look at the rest of Mark, we're going to see even further how Jesus in this call redefines safety because we all want safety. That's what we want in life. We want to know we're going to be cared for, we're going to be taken care of. We want safety and yet Jesus calls these disciples within a few months they're fearing for their lives. And yet, even as the years go on, they're still fearing for their lives. And yet, you, you, you look at them and what they talk about and how they behave and they're also ultimately joyful at the same time, making a historic impact. And the call today that Jesus is making to us is, do you want to be like these simple men and women that I called back then who made an historic impact because that's what my call is intending to do in your life. And that's what God's inviting us to as quest. Are we willing to follow 
in a radical way with him, radically loving, radically beautiful, in a way that we can make a historic impact, not for anybody's bragging rights, but just because there are lost people. There are people caught in the pain of divorce. There are people caught in the pain of shallow relationships, in darkness and chaos all around us, in addiction all around us. And God wants us to be becoming better and better all the time at taking people from darkness to light. He wants to redefine in that process for us that safety is not a lack of danger or a lack of fear, but it is hiding under the shadow of the Almighty, as Almighty, as Scripture says, or as David puts it, it is God preparing a table before me in the presence of my enemies, or it's perseverance, as the New Testament says, that it's perseverance that leads to hope. And it's Jesus who says to us, if you lose your life, you will find it. And the reverse is true as well. There's a story that illustrates this by George MacDonald. He is an author from the 1900s who wrote children's stories primarily. Uh, They were were an influence on J.R. Tolkien, Lord of the Rings fame, because he wrote children's stories to illustrate moral and biblical truths. And in the story of the princess and the goblin, the basic story goes like this. It's a story about Irene, who lives in a great big house. And Irene has found that in the attic of her house, her fairy grandmother appears and talks with her every now and then. And she loves going to the attic to meet with her grandmother. One day, her grandmother appears and gives her a ring with a thread tied on it. And attached to it on the other end is a little ball of thread. The worship team can go ahead and come if you want. Irene's fairy godmother says, I'm giving you this ring with a thread on it, and I am going to keep the ball. And Irene says, but I don't see the thread. Oh, the thread is too fine to see, dear one. You can only feel it, said the grandmother. And Irene reaches out and she feels it. She says, oh, I do feel it. There. Now, said grandmother, if you ever find yourself in danger, this is what you must do. You must take off the ring, put it under the pillow on your bed, and put your forefinger on the thread and follow the thread wherever it leads you. Oh, how delightful, Irene said. It will lead me to a a grandmother I know, and therefore I will be safe. Yes, said the grandmother, but it may seem a very roundabout way indeed. You must not doubt the thread. Wherever it takes you, just remember, while you hold one end, I hold the other. A few days later, Irene is in bed in the dark, and the goblins got into the house, and she hears them snarling in the hallway, and she's afraid. But she has the presence of mind to take the ring off and put it under the pillow and feel the thread and says, good, it's going to take me to grandmother in safety. But her dismay, instead of taking her up the stairs to the attic where she normally met with her, it took her out into the dark woods, into the scary dark woods. And as she keeps following the thread, she suddenly realizes she's headed right for the cave of the goblins and she's going into the cave and she nervously continues and the thread leads her right up to a heap of stones the block going any further. And the thread leads right into and through the stones. It's a dead end. It's a dead end. And a thought struck her. Well, she could follow the thread backwards and at least get out of the cave, right? So she turns around, but instantly she tried to feel it backward and it vanished from her touch. Grandmother's thread only worked forward. But forward, it only led into a heap of stones. Irene burst into a wailing cry of tears on the ground, fell on the stones, 
After crying, she realized, I have to follow my thread. And the only way to follow the thread is to start tearing down the wall of stones. She wrestled with stone after stone, tearing away at the rock wall, her fingers bleeding, and she pulled and pulled and pulled. And as the rock wall began to crumble and the hole began to emerge, she heard her friend's voice, Curdie, who had been trapped in the goblin's cave. And Curdie is astounded and said, How did you ever find me? My grandmother sent me, Irene replied. I have no idea why she had me come this way, but now I know why. Curdie, relieved, responded, Great, I'm getting out of here. And he starts to go back out the cave in the way Irene came, but the thread keeps going down deeper into the cave, and Irene calls to Curdie and says, I'm sorry, we have to follow the thread. And Curdie objected, saying, I've already been down there. Where are you going? That's not the way out. I couldn't get out that way. That way is blocked, too. I know, said Irene, but this is the way my thread goes, and I must follow it. I know it doesn't make sense, but if I'd given up on it before, I would have been so foolish. I would have never rescued you. I must follow the thread wherever it goes. And guys, you probably have a hard time relating to fairies and grandmothers, so let's just reframe the story for a second for you into 24 hours of Jack Bauer's thread, okay? He must follow the call. He must follow the mission. He must follow the thread regardless of the cost. And this is what Jesus is saying to you and calling you to himself. Following the thread regardless. It might not be, it might not be easy. It, it might feel fearful. It might feel out of control even at times. But he's on the other end of the thread. And the thread leads to safety. Jesus is saying, I have a wonderfully good vision for your life an amazingly good vision for your life. I am going to heal you of the self-centeredness that keeps robbing you of the fruit that I intend to bring to your life. And I intend through you to make an eternal difference as you follow me in being, becoming fishers of men and women. As the story illustrates, Jesus is inviting us to walk forward with it. He says, you can't, you can't set your hand to the plow and turn back it only goes forward. But as you do, you will find hidden behind those, behind those walls that seem like they won't move. You'll, you'll, you'll find as you walk through those tunnels that don't seem like you know where you're going and are scary. You'll find as you, you walk through the woods that seem dark and there's thorns and, and you're not sure and you can't see, you'll find friends who need life. And you'll find friends who give you life as you follow the thread. Jesus' call to each of us redefines everything in life. It redefines our life quest at the very core. Are you letting him redefine your life? Really? Are you following the thread forward or are you dropping it and wanting to go back because the walls just don't seem like they could move? The tunnel doesn't seem right and the, the dark of the forest is too scary? Are you dropping the, the thread and walking back? Are you choosing to live through a, a Jesus who's nicer, easier? Or do you really want to follow the real Jesus? The one who can make a big difference. Let's pray. 
Lord, even as I even as I think now, Lord, there's none of us who could measure up to the full commitment of what you're asking from us. But Lord, I, I ask that you would help us each step, each moment to give you that commitment to follow your thread for our lives. Regardless of the cost, regardless of the direction it takes us, regardless of how it redefines success or redefines anything in our life, Lord, that we would make you king of everything in our life. Because you lead us to safety. And you lead us to life. And you lead us to purpose. Lord, do that in us. Do that through us in this community. In Jesus' name. kept you long. I apologize for it all too often. I think this is important. Some of you um, have left churches in your past. You've left them for the wrong reasons. You've left them and completely missed the reason for even following Christ. Because when you got hurt or when you got frustrated or when you got disappointed by lack of position or lack of something going on or what you wanted, you, you left out of frustration rather than left out of a leading from God. You blamed it on leading from God, but you really, honestly, deep down, you left and it was a lack of faithfulness. I want to invite you today to settle that issue understand that Christ is calling us to be faithful even when others around us are not faithful. That unless you can press through relationship, even in spite of differences, love, even when you're hurt and offended, faithfulness, even when your needs are not being met as you want them to be met, unless you can press through that, you miss the core of what it means to follow Jesus doesn't mean you'll never leave here and I'm not saying this because there are a bunch of people leaving now I'm actually saying this because this is a relative time of stability and I want to talk about stuff like this when things are stable not when things are going haywire but that is really the core of the gospel if we don't make that the core of the gospel then it becomes empty religion and you will bounce from church to church to church to church and blame God and blame faith and blame church and blame others and you will never discover what God wants you to have. So I call you today to settle that issue. Put that stuff behind you. If you need to ask forgiveness, be forgiven and walk past it. And some of you have heard a message today about faith that calls you to a radical commitment that you've never made. And some of you are feeling that God is asking you to make that now. Not me, not pressure, not emotion. God is asking you to make that now. I don't want you to leave today without making that decision. Would you turn to a friend before you leave and say, I have not made this commitment in the past, and I know God is asking me to do it today. And pray together. If you don't have a friend that you want to turn to and do that with, we will have people on the sides here who will be happy to just stand in with you and make that commitment real as you state it out before somebody else and state it before God and pray with you. 
request. God is calling us, not for bragging rights, not for fame rights, but for his glory to make a difference because our community needs us to bring people out of darkness to light, to bring people out of false religion, advice-based religion, to relationship and the freedom of true identity with him. And I believe God wants Quest and other churches in this area to make a historic difference in the next 10 years in our communities. Would you join in that faithfully, sacrificially, radically? That's the call today. God bless. Have a great day.